0: Hey, you're listening to Yo, This Can't Be Life, the podcast that aims to educate and inform black women on how to take better care of their physical, mental, and financial health. I'm your host, Bree Montgomery, and I'm inviting you to join me as I interview resident experts to find out the cheat codes to living your best life. The information provided is intended to be general advice and should not be considered medical advice. For that, please consult your medical professional. This week, we're discussing obesity in the black community. We're talking about removing bias and shame. We're talking about treating obesity as a disease. And we're also talking about its increased link to COVID-19 mortality. In the guest chair, we have Dr. Stanford, who practices and teaches at Massachusetts General Hospital, Harvard Medical School, as one of the first fellowship trained obesity medicine physicians in the world. Dr. Stanford received her B.S. and M.P.H. from Emory University as an MLK Scholar, her M.D. from the Medical College of Georgia School of Medicine as a Stoney Scholar, and her M.P.A. from Harvard Kennedy Medical School of Government as a Zuckerman Fellow in the Harvard Center for Public Leadership. She completed her Obesity Medicine and Nutritional Fellowship at MGH HMS, after completing her internal medicine and pediatrics residency at the University of South Carolina. She has served as health communications fellow at the Center for Disease Control and Prevention and as a behavioral sciences intern at the American Cancer Society. And with that, let's get into the show. So at this time, I'd like to welcome Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford to the show. Today, we're talking about all things obesity in the Black community. Can you let us into how it is you got into this particular specialty? Absolutely. Well, first, let me let me tell you guys who I am, because I don't
1: think you guys got a proper introduction. So I am an obesity medicine physician and scientist at Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. I'm one of the first fellowship-trained obesity medicine physicians in the world. Um, and so I care for patients that have diagnosis of overweight and obesity and I care for patients across the age spectrum so I care for pediatric and adult patients before I did my three-year fellowship in obesity medicine here at Harvard I did a res- I did residencies in both internal medicine which is doctors for adults and pediatrics so doctor for children so I see everyone but that gives you a sense of kind of like how I'm approaching this and then going back to your question why study obesity What we don't know is that a lot of people don't know that obesity is the most prevalent chronic disease in the United States. And so then if you're thinking about, okay, so what what does that mean? Prevalence, like how many people? So if you're looking at the number or the percentage of the population, the U.S. adult population will focus on adults, 42.4% of U.S. adults have obesity. And what drove me to this field as a black woman is understanding why there were such big disparities in what we were seeing in the black community versus the greater community. So when we look at obesity in black women, particularly, which is the group I represent, um, we have approximately 60% of black women that have the disease of obesity, Mm. and approximately 20% who are classified as having overweight, which means that 80% of black women by the current definitions meet the criteria for overweight and obesity here in the United States. That is a sizable number. Now, you might debate me, and I, I would t- I welcome a debate on like the definition of obesity. And when we look at the definition of obesity, we're looking at this idea of body mass index, which just takes into account height and weight, but doesn't give me a lot of other information. And so then we end up grouping you. So it's a great population-wide thing. So if I'm looking at the whole population, I can say, this percentage of the population has obesity like I just did. But what I have to pay attention to as a doctor that cares for patients is I have to take individual people into into perspective. So I'm not looking at just the sheer number on the scale. I'm looking at where is that weight distributed. Mm -hmm. So when we carry weight in our midsection, in our abdominal region, that means we have central, central meaning the central part of our body, adiposity. Adiposity is just fancy word for fat. Okay. So adipose tissue is fat tissue. When you carry it in your abdominal region, not so hot, not so good. Not just because you don't look cute in a bikini, which you might not, but that's not the concern. The concern is that when you carry it around your midsection, it affects your metabolic health. And by metabolic health, we're talking about your risk for things such as diabetes, heart disease, fatty liver, these types of things that really affect not only our quality of life, but our length of life, our likelihood of getting sick and our likelihood of dying earlier than we should. So I'll pause there because you may have some additional questions, but I just want to give you guys that as an outset of how I think about this disease of obesity and how I think about treating it in my patients.
0: Okay. So with that You talked about how there's a controversy over the BMI and things like that. Mm -hmm. So then what should we use? Should we use like a weight size metric? I think
1: that the BMI is a good point to kind of get a sense of like generally where you are. Um, I actually published a paper um, in in one of the academic journals Mm -hmm. at the beginning of 2019 where I went and redrew the body mass index for black white, Hispanic men and women. Mm -hmm. Um, And for black women, we did shift a little bit. So a BMI, so if you guys are wondering about the definition or body mass index, if you go and look up, like, what's my BMI? Anything that's 30 or higher is considered to be someone that has obesity, okay? What I found in my study when I kind of redrew it based upon current data is that for most black women, it shifts up to about 31, which is not very far off from 30. So slightly higher than the norm, but not significantly different um it is slightly different than other groups for example but you know i think it's important for us to use that and say oh my gosh i either have mild moderate or severe obesity based upon this and so mild obesity just to give some notes to the audience is a body mass index of 30 to 34.9 moderate obesity is a bmi of 35 to 39.9 and then those that have severe obesity have body mass index of 40 or higher. You can get into granular details of like okay what if they're an athlete and they fall at 32. Mm-hmm. Most people aren't really in these in these clear things and you know very few people you know are out playing for the WNBA or you know the level of athlete that would really make a difference for us to see that level of activity contribute But I think it's important for us to recognize that this is not a moral failing. When patients have obesity, it means that there's a dysregulation in how their brain, it's a part of the brain called the hypothalamus, how it sees weight. So the hypothalamus gets signals from our body to tell us not only how much to eat, it tells us how much to store. And that comes from various different things. Yeah, you could just be like, oh, well, she needs to just put away the fried chicken. By the way, I don't like fried chicken. I know that I'm black. And I still don't like fried chicken and I'm from the South. I'm from Atlanta. Mm-hmm. So I just want to share this to you all that are listening. But for That's example, a but look, <laughs> to share this. I just dropped, shared <laughs> you it. out there. it's okay. It's just okay. You guys can come and you yes, know, bash me later. This is a safe
0: place. It's a safe a safe place. Yes.
1: Um, but, but for example, so yes, is it about diet quality? That's important. But the only thing we ever think about when we're thinking about weight are these two things. What are we eating and how much are we exercising? And those are important things. But obesity is so much more complex. It can right. be caused by stress, racism, which causes stress. It can be caused by trauma that we've had in our life. It can be caused by the fact that we were born to parents that had obesity. So if you have two parents that have obesity, so mom and dad, the likelihood that you yourself will have obesity, no matter how great you eat, no matter how much exercising you do, is on the order of somewhere between 50 to 85% chance. Wow. Right? So people don't think about that. They're like, oh, when they see a family that has obesity and they see a child, they're like, oh, it's what they're feeding them. That could play a role, but if those are the parents, it's the it's who they came from.
0: Right? right? Like
1: I'm born and I'm a black person. That's not gonna change in my lifetime. Even if I think it is it's, it's what is what I am. My parents are black. I'm black and that's fine. I'm happy about it. I'm, I mean, hashtag black girl magic, right? Right. But I can't go back and change that. That's the card I was dealt, right? That's, that's something I was put here. You may have been dealt the card that you had obesity starting at a very young age and you might feel like, okay, there's nothing I can do. And and that's where the problem arises. Okay. There are people like me that for my entire life, all I do is treat patients that have obesity, and we have a lot of great therapies that go underutilized in the whole community, but particularly in our community.
0: Okay, that at least is very good to know because, I yeah, the numbers and the statistics about Black women in particular and obesity is very startling, and then and then you add on the fact that hey. You know, you got the stacks against you if you had obese parents, which a lot of black. Well, so okay, let me
1: change your words, my dear. So we never use the word obese. We're going to cut that out of vocabulary oh, okay, for all yeah. of you guys that are listening. Get that out of your vocabulary. Obese is a label. Okay. Obesity is a disease. So when I call someone obese, that's kind of mean. It's kind of inflammatory. Notice I've always said a person with obesity, a patient oh, with obesity. Okay, okay. So they have it, much like they have depression or have diabetes or have something okay. else. We don't want to label them. They're not, they're not defined by that. Yeah. Gotcha. I, yes, I am a black woman, right? That, that may be some of uh, how people see me in the world, but am I a black obese person? No, I'm a, I could be a black woman with obesity. Okay. okay. Right. And that's fine. It is what it is, but then it takes away some of the blame that we place on ourselves with regards to this disease process. And that blame, that shame game that we play in our head because we're our own worst critic, and we all know that, right? Yes. That's what precludes our ability often to get the care that we need.
0: Yes, absolutely. And I remember looking up some articles and seeing you say that part of it is biased also with the medical professionals that you work with. And I think people think that, but to hear a doctor say that is kind of like, absolution can we talk a little bit more about that absolutely i just finished talking about this today with somebody i can't
1: remember who i was talking to but you know i think the docs are actually pretty horrible um and i as this is speaking as a doc as an md because unfortunately, we don't learn much about obesity in medical school. Okay. So I published a large paper that came, I, as you can tell, this is I'm a research scientist, so I'm always publishing somebody's paper, gotcha. my papers. I, so I published a paper that came out in the International Journal of Obesity where I looked at education of doctors around the entire world at the medical school level, at the residency level, and at the fellowship level to see like, hey, who's doing a good job? The problem is nobody's doing a good job. There's not one country that emerges, oh wow, Sweden is doing an amazing job of educating doctors. No one does a good job. We do here in the US, we don't do a good job. In Europe and Africa, nobody's doing a good job. So what happens is if no one learns about it and you come into your doctor and you have obesity, their biases that they have based upon what they learned before or after med school are what dictates how they respond to you often.
0: Okay.
1: This can be highly discouraging because Absolutely. if your doc says to you and you've been coming in and you've been exercising, you've been eating well, you've been monitoring things, you've been checking off lists and doing all kinds of stuff. And then you come back the next year and then the doc's like, well, you need to just eat less and exercise more. And you're like, but doc, I've been, I've been doing that. And your doctor doesn't offer you additional tools because they don't know about the additional tools. Then... They often, instead of dealing with the problem or finding some additional ways to help you, will just assume you did something wrong. Now, that would be unacceptable in really any other area of medicine, right? Let's say Mm -hmm. you came in with diabetes. Okay. And the doc said to you, Bree, you know what? You just need to go eat less and exercise more. That would be malpractice. Right. I would lose my medical license if that was the only thing I said. And you came in with severe diabetes, Right. Right. I would lose my medical license in any state in, in the union. I'm in Massachusetts, but I would lose my medical license because that's not the standard of care. The standard of care for obesity, unfortunately, is what I just said. Eat less, exercise more. Done. Check box. I did address that. Mm. There are those of us. Yes. Not, there's only a few of us that have done fellowships in this space, about 50 of us in the country, but There are now over 4,000 physicians that are board certified in obesity medicine. Okay. And so if you're trying to figure out like, okay, but she's in Boston. I can't, I'm not going up there. I understand that. Reasonable. You can look on the American Board of Obesity Medicine website and actually find a doctor in your zip code. So you can look and see, you know, who's there. I mean, be careful because I think that one of the key things as someone that works in a in a hospital that's a nonprofit hospital, I take basically all insurances or, you know, all the insurances that are based here. But in some of these practices, you might find that there may be like a cash practice or things like that. So be very careful
0: when okay. you're looking
1: up persons to see what what is being taken in terms of like insurance, right? Because there are some of us like me that take Medicare, Medicaid, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And then there are others that do not. And so just obviously be mindful of that. But there are those of us that are board certified to, to care for patients that have obesity.
0: Okay. That is great to know because that was would have been my next question. Like, okay, well, if a lot of the doctors don't know, then who do we go to? So that was very good. Now, obesity has been in the news a lot more than normal right now because of all the things going on with COVID-19. And I'm Mm -hmm. hearing a lot of people say that it raises the risk of death, even in young people. True. What about obesity makes people more susceptible to higher mortality rates? Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought
1: this up. This is a a major issue. And I'm right now leading all of the research efforts um, looking at obesity within our entire hospital accountable care organization so looking across you know, multiple hospitals. What I, what I want to say, and I've written about this and published a few pieces recently, um, one in metabolism, one in the International Journal of Obesity, on this very, very issue. What we do know is that obesity is not just how you look. It's actually characterized by inflammation in the body. Okay. So fat tissue is an active organ. It's not just something that looks maybe undesirable it actually is an active organ and it often is associated with more inflammation it's not that everybody has fat right like no matter how lean or how how much more excess weight you carry we have different levels of fat tissue but when you have excess weight excess fat inflammation in the body increases when inflammation in the body increases and you develop Another process that's an infectious process, i.e. COVID-19, you have inflammation in this fancy words, I'm gonna throw out like cytokines and all these things that are associated with the COVID. You have the inflammation associated with the obesity, and they don't play well together. Okay, okay. so One of the things that was very interesting for me was looking at the CDC change their guidelines on risk factors for COVID as time went on here in the US. When it first came to the US, a few days after it came, what docs and nurses were noticing in hospitals were that people that had severe obesity, and just to remind you guys, severe obesity was body mass index greater than or equal to 40. They were seeing those patients have significantly poor responses. Then they started to pay closer attention. They were like, wait a minute, it's not just those that have severe obesity, it's obesity as a whole, across. So then CDC changed their guidelines again to include all of obesity. And so this is why I want us to get out of our mind. It's not just how I look, Right. it's what's going on internally, what that inflammation. So if we measure some of these inflammatory markers I'm gonna throw out some so that you guys know I went to med school, like IL-1, IL-6, TNF, alpha MCP-1, these types of things. And we look at these in patients that have obesity, they tend to be significantly elevated versus someone that doesn't have obesity. And so these things appear to, to be really major issue. Now, the other group that we've heard is having a significant issue with morbidity, which means sickness from COVID and death are those that are from minority communities, right? Black and Latinx or Hispanic um, Latino communities have been disproportionately affected. But let's go back and think about obesity. Which groups have the highest levels of obesity in this country? Mm. It's the Black and Latinx community. So it was not surprising at all when I started seeing the numbers come out of my hospital and hospitals around the country that supported this. And another thing I noticed when I was looking at television, because unfortunately CNN is the only thing that's ever on my TV... I was noticing that the reporters would come on and they'd be like, "Oh, we have John Doe who just passed. He has no pre-existing conditions, but as an obesity medicine doctor, I'm like, well, no, actually, he has severe obesity." Right, right, right. And then the next person, 45 year old, no pre-existing conditions. I'm like, well, "Yep, yeah, that's another patient." Um, but we have yet to recognize obesity is the disease. It is. It's not just how we look. Right, it actually right. affects how our organs work. Um, So for those of you that may be old enough to remember when H1N1 came out in 2009, they saw similar issues with obesity, but just the pandemic was not, it wasn't a pandemic. It was just H1N1, right? Like it didn't affect all of our lives the way that COVID has. Um, But some of these same issues that we saw emerge at that time with another viral pathogen, Mm -hmm. H1N1 influenza, as opposed to... COVID-19, which is called SARS-CoV-2, we see similar things. I mean, they're different pathogens, but mm-hmm. in some ways they attack some of the similar systems. And so that's what we have to know. We are not treating obesity to look cute for our next class reunion or for our wedding or for something. We are treating obesity to treat the disease that causes inflammation, that causes worsened um, disease, not only related to COVID, but to, with regards to almost everything else. It increases our risk of cancer. It increases our risk of heart disease, stroke, et cetera, et cetera. We can keep going at least 100 different disease processes that we know. And what docs should be aware of is that if we treat the obesity, often we have significant impacts on all of those things. I'm able to remove diagnoses off of my patient's charts when I treat their obesity. What else do we have that with? If I treat your diabetes and then treat your sleep apnea and treat all these things, I just keep adding things, which is fine. You know, we got to treat the things but wouldn't it be great to just treat the thing that's causing all the things? Right, I mean, right. That's kind of how I think. Well, that's not kind of. That's definitively how I
0: think about it. Absolutely. Yes, I agree with that whole thought process. So for those of us who don't necessarily or can't find the obesity specialized docs in our area, a lot of the things we talk about on this show is becoming your own health advocate and being able to do a little bit of the research to be able to I don't know, spark the thing in the doctor's brain to ask for to get them going because I feel like they have it in there. They just, yeah. you know. So <laughs> what funny. kind of things do you ask to kind of get the conversation going past just exercise a little more, eat a little less?
1: Yeah, I think the things, let me tell you the things that I ask my patients about. I ask them about what, not just, I ask them about the quality of their diet. And by quality, I mean like, are we, do we have lean protein, whole grains, fruits, vegetables as our predominant source? Okay. Unfortunately, as in this COVID-19 pandemic, we have a lot of issues with job loss and job insecurity, which right. leads to food insecurity.
0: Mm, yes.
1: Food insecurity means that I may not know when my next meal is coming and I can't, and if I do know, I can't then decide what that is going to look like. If I'm have only access to this and not my nice lean piece of salmon plus my asparagus and whatever, right. That looks different. And so food insecurity is something that I think we have to be aware of, especially as many of our communities have been impacted by a lot of these layoffs and furloughs, et cetera, and don't have the means to eat as healthy as we might want. Um, Food insecurity has a high association with obesity. And so it's, it's, this idea of scarcity, but scarcity of the right types of foods. The less processed foods are more expensive, typically, than the right. processed things, right? Like I can go buy absolutely a whole family, you know, I don't know. I don't shop really at McDonald's, but I don't know. Let's say you could buy five Big Macs and then five fries for much less than you could if you were to go to some fancy restaurant, you know, or something like this. There are ways to eat healthy. Um, and so I would ask about what, you know, and eat healthy for cheap. It's all about the frozen foods, right? Frozen vegetables are super cheap. You can buy a whole bag of spinach for two dollars, two dollars, six servings. People don't think about those things because they don't they don't typically make it over to the frozen food aisle, but that's how you shop economically. You're like, how oh, gosh, fruit's so expensive. Frozen fruit two three dollars you know there's there's certain ways that you can do this, and I can tell you while I was in training medical school, residency, fellowship. I lived like almost exclusively of, of my frozen fruits and my frozen vegetables and my frozen meats. Every, that was how I was able to to live not only economically, but to get healthy foods in that I didn't have to worry about spoiling because I wasn't right. in the hospital or any of these types of things. So these, because we don't want to have waste also, right? Like a lot of the fresh is, is wasteful if we don't eat it immediately. So that's one thing. So I ask people to think about their diet quality. You know, this is... This is key thing. So this is you advocating for yourself. I want you to think about your, not only did you go and work out yesterday before you got your hair done, I want you to think about are you consistent, right? It's okay. not just that you went and did a walk yesterday <laughs> and then people tell me, well, how do, for, I've walked for a mile and I, no, that's not enough. I need five miles. <laughs> so the average number of steps people should be taking is about 10,000 a day. Most of us don't get there. That's five miles. And you might be like, well, I don't feel like wearing my mask. Well, you know what? Just suck it up. Put your mask on and get out there and get moving. If you want to be outside. I do a lot of my working out indoors. So I will put on a one Demand video. I use this thing called Beachbody One Demand. And I do my workout and I do it every day. Because I would be slightly hypocritical, if not fully hypocritical, if I wasn't doing the things I'm telling you to do. And after you get in the habit. And it takes about eight to 12 weeks to get in the habit of doing okay. activity okay. every day. And we want to talk about, when I say every day, I want to say, Hey, what were you doing 10 years ago? Were you active? What were you doing 20 years ago? I don't know how old you guys are, but the thing is, is I want to see something sustained for the rest of your life. Not just today. I don't want you to just jump on the next fad. Right. Same with the okay. diet. I don't want you to just jump on a diet. I want you to do something that if I were to come back to you in 2030, Who knows what the heck is going to happen by then. But if I were to come back to you by 2030, that you would say, oh, my gosh, I feel really healthy. I've been eating some healthy things. And I'm not on some crash diet that whatever diet fad number 25. Right. You know, so that's a key thing. A lot of people don't realize that their sleep plays a large role in how the body regulates weight. And so when I'm talking about sleep. It's not just the length of time you're sleeping, your duration, it's the quality of your sleep. So if your sleep is really broken and fragmented, not so good because the brain needs to get that restoration to go back to that part of the brain, right? That it tells you how much to eat and how much to store, that fun part of the brain called the hypothalamus. If you're not getting that adequate sleep, it's going to throw off those signals, okay? And it's going to make the storage and eating process even worse, So uh, if you feel like you're snoring, um, if you're gasping or choking for air at night, if you're waking up with a headache in the morning, um, if you're just sleepy all day long, these types of things tip me off as a doctor to say, you know what, I think I may have sleep apnea. And if I have sleep apnea, I could die. It's an easy way to die. I mean you know, you die in your sleep, but maybe not, you may not want to die. So let's think about treating it. Um, And what happens with sleep apnea is that you have two things happening. You have apnea, which means you stop breathing altogether. And hypopnea, which means your oxygen levels drop too low. And that combination means you don't wake up. Now, if I'm, if I were to come in, I always tell my patients, if I come and try to physically do this, they would push my hands off if they were awake. But if I were to try to do that, if they're asleep, they are not conscious enough to know to push me away. And so when they're when they stop breathing or their oxygen stops too low, if they were awake, they'd probably like cough or air, do something to to kind of get their body to trigger back into breathing correctly. But if they're asleep, you can't do that because you're not conscious in that way. Okay. And I tell you the thing that that has that really pushed me into this field, in addition to wanting to care for black women, was that I lost um, my two, the two patients that I lost was an 11 year old girl, black girl at the age of 11 to sleep apnea. When I was a resident, I thought she had sleep apnea. We were discharging her from the hospital. I arranged for her to get a sleep test two weeks after she got out of the hospital. She died two days later. So she never got to her tests. And wow. at 11 years old, she was not living. I have a family member who was set to get married in six months, 26 years old, black woman. Whoa. Severe obesity, died in her sleep of obstructive sleep apnea six months before her wedding. These aren't the stories that I, I'm happy about. These are the stories that tell me that we could be doing better. And so if you're noticing that you have any of those things, sleepiness, snoring, gasping or choking for air in the middle of the night, somebody tells you, hey, you stop breathing in the middle of the night, or, you know, you have this morning headache. These are things that are alarm bells to me to say, hey, doc, I think I need to be tested for sleep apnea. And testing and getting the appropriate equipment can actually help you lose weight because it then regulates your sleep, right? Those are key things. I always think about medications that we're on. A lot of the meds that we prescribe as docs, and a lot of the docs don't know this, but they cause weight gain. Right,
0: right. So you may
1: be like, well... Gosh, I didn't know that that medicine causes weight gain. So talk to your docs about like, hey, I'm on, am I on any medicines that could cause weight gain? If they don't know, they need to look it up or maybe you can look it up and see, see this weight gain fall under the medication list or the medication side effects, right? So you can Google, you know, Google, we go in, I don't want you to use Google as your doctor because Dr. Google didn't go to med school, no degree there. But I want you to Google and look at your drugs. So, I mean, the list that I always rattle off to my patients to see if you've been on any of these meds for a month or longer, I'm going to just do it. Lithium, Depakote, Tegretol, Celexis, Cymbalta, Effexor, Paxil, Prozac, Ambien, Trazidone, Lunesta, Gabapentin, Glaburide, Glypiz, Glamepiride, Long-Term Insulin, Long-Term Prednisone, um, antihistamines like cetirizine, IVF medications, just to name the ones that I can think of right that Ooh. second. So... All of those meds, and that's just, that's not an exhaustive list. Um, right. All right. of those meds can cause obesity. They can cause weight gain. I've seen patients gain up to 180 pounds from medicines that they're on.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a sadly a testimony on the prednisone that you right. listed in there. See? So mm-hmm. it's not a game. <laughs> it's not a game. No,
1: no. And the thing is, is that we have to be understanding, and a lot of docs are unfamiliar with the fact that their treatments, which sometimes you need, like sometimes I can't get rid of those drugs, like they, that's needed to treat whatever. But sometimes people are on the drugs and they don't even know why they're on the drugs. Oh, yeah. Right? Or, yeah, I mean, I can yeah. tell you, I went to my hairstylist. This is a true story. Because, you know, black women, we spend some time in the hairstylist. Yeah. Right? So I went into my hairstylist, my initial hair or my first hairstylist here in Boston. And we were talking, because, you know, she has you captive in the chair, right, right? right? So she's talking to me, and she's like, hey, Fatima, you know, I think, I think I've think i been gaining some weight. And I was like, okay, well, it's, you know, I'm so, sorry to hear that. What's going on? She's like, I don't know, I'm... She starts going through and I'm like, oh, she's like, yeah, I got a new diagnosis for depression. And I was like, okay, well, well, what medicine did they put you on?" And she was like, mirtazapine. I was like, what? And she was like, why would you say that? And I was like, why did they put you in that one? That one caused like a lot of weight gain. She's like, really? I was like, yeah. She was like, my doc didn't say that. And I was like, yeah. So I wrote down on like my business card, which I had in the, in the salon, what I wanted her to get put on, um, which was to get switched over to a drug called Wilbutrin or Bupropion. She... Went and told her doctor that I was the doctor that told her she needed to change. She changed. I went back to see her eight weeks later. She had lost 20 pounds.
0: Wow. Wow. So
1: I felt like she should have just get me- done my hair for free. Don't you guys think?
0: I think so. That, it, I it, like- and if not that time, definitely the next, the next time. time. But she had already lost the 20 pounds. I'm just saying. Right, I mean, but she, she didn't know that time. Like, no, she, she didn't. Had... No, I'm
1: talking about the second. When I went back, she told me she lost 20 pounds. Oh, yeah. Now, the second forgot, time, I'm just saying. That,
0: that should have been a free... I, should, I mean, because you changed be like,
1: your whole life. I'm just saying. She's like, yeah, and I don't have to do anything differently.
0: And I'm just right. doing everything. I mean, to lose 20 pounds and not have to change anything, no extra... Just change right. the medicine. <laughs> yeah. And I wrote
1: it down on the card. I'm just saying. Right. So these are things that a lot of people aren't aware of, you know. So our meds can be culprits. And, and sometimes, we like I said, sometimes we have to be on these meds that cause us to gain weight. And it is what it is. But there are certain times when they can be taken off or substituted or changed over to different medicine. Um, and still treat the disease appropriately.
0: Right. Absolutely. Thank you for all that, those free gems. Because I know people are probably going to be stopping and restarting that list of medicine. Like, wait a minute, did she say mine? Because we (laughs) all want to be able to go back and say, hey, can we just take a look at this? Not necessarily, Mm -hmm. you know, it might not necessarily be able to be changed.
1: Right. And um, not always.
0: Can I change it? Yeah. At let's, it, take let's take a look at it. Let's take a look. And sometimes
1: patients it. are like, hey, this is the only antidepressant that worked for me. If right. that's the case and they've tried all of them, you know, maybe not all, but like most. And then I'm like, OK, well, we can't really change that. Maybe I need to add another medicine that can
0: treat your obesity. Right. Because as we have talked about all these things that obesity causes, you don't want to get obesity from another problem that you had and now you got two problems yes exactly one which is probably worse than the original problem
1: exactly and I think so that the key thing I want us also to be because I haven't talked about that at all so far and I want us to realize that we do not appropriately or utilize enough medications to treat obesity okay and surgery and people are kind of like, oh, my God. I mean, even in my own family, I can't get people that I know need surgery like five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. I can get my patients after I give them ultimatums. But the best treatment for severe obesity for both kids and adults is by far surgery. Oh, okay. Um, a lot of people don't realize that. When I say it's the best treatment, you're kind of like, well, what is she talking about? What we do know is that let's say you have diabetes, on average... Most people get rid of their diabetes within three days of the surgery.
0: Stop. Wow. Stop.
1: Shut the front door. Right. Exactly. Three days. Right. No, no. I'm not. And I'm not making this up. And that's huge. And so do you think that many people have lost that much weight in three days? No. No. no So it's something about the surgery. So this number one surgery we do in the country right now is called a sleeve gastrectomy. Sleeve means it looks like a sleeve. Gastrectomy means like the the stomach and we cut out part of the stomach. A lot of people are like, oh my God, you're cutting out my stomach. And they think it's because their stomach is smaller that they're losing weight. No, not really. Actually, there's a hormone, a big hormone called ghrelin, G-H-R-E-L-I-N. It stimulates hunger in the body. It's in your stomach and it's in your brain. And when we cut out that part of the stomach, You have a lot less hunger because it's not there. That hormone can't signal (laughs) for a part that's no longer there. So people notice often drastic changes in their hunger after surgery. They're not intentionally trying to be less hungry. They physically are just not because that hormone, for example, other hormones change after surgery. Now, people have to realize that if you've had surgery, you do need chronic care. Okay. What I mean is that it is not a magic bullet. It doesn't just, it's not like a, a fairy tale godmother and this wave a wand. <laughs> right. It requires still a lifelong dedication, and different people respond differently. So some person may lose a really large amount. Some people lose significantly less. And if you're working with someone like myself, we can help you if you get to a point where, like, let's say you've halted or you still have a lot of excess body weight. And most right. people that have surgery still have obesity after the surgery. So it doesn't just fix obesity.
0: Yeah, okay. obesity
1: is a chronic disease. It just lessens it significantly better than other things we have available. So that's one thing. Only 1% of people in this country that meet criteria for surgery actually get surgery. Wow. And black patients are significantly less likely to get it even after having a diagnosis. The next thing is medications. People don't realize that we have a lot of great medications to treat obesity. Just like we have medications to treat high blood pressure or diabetes or asthma or whatever it might be, we have medications to treat obesity. If you go on a medication to treat your obesity, it is a lifelong commitment. Gotcha. Don't expect to go and get off the med. Be like, hey, doc, when I'm going to get off the med. Never. If it works for you and you don't have side effects, it's treating the chronic disease of obesity. So if it's treating the chronic disease and then I pull the medicine away, what happens, Brie? You get it back. You get it back. Thanks, Brie. <laughs> you get it back. And then people are like, "Well, why did yeah. I gain?" I'm like, "Because you stopped the medicine. Why did you do that? Like,
0: what was the point of that?" Now, if you're mm. having side effects, that's one thing, right? And that was that's the thing with but, me because when I hear, I can I can see people have hesitation on being on something the rest of your life. Because, but if you yeah, but I, if
1: you need it for your asthma, you wouldn't hesitate. Right. If you had right. needed it for your high blood pressure, you wouldn't hesitate. But for some well, reason, some, yeah, well, yeah, you're right. right. <laughs> for some people. When they hear it's for my weight, wait a minute, I have to do what? Right. And it's like a different thought process. They'll be on like 12 meds. And then I'm like, well, let's add this route well, no, I don't want to be on a med. I'm like, you've been on these 12 for 18 years. Like, what are you talking about? But that's, there's this, this bias. And so right. I want us right. to not be so biased because we do have these medications that are available. And why not utilize them if they're evidence-based and proven?
0: I think, yeah, Yeah, if they're evidence-based and proven, and like you said, if you don't have side effects, and that's the major kicker for me, because Mm -hmm. all the drugs I'm on, I keep trying to ask my doctor to get off, because there are so many side effects, but I know that I need them at this point, but yeah, the plan is, but if they don't have side effects, I could be more willing to stay on it, but I think- Well, yeah, that's the whole thing. I always tell my patients, as like, look, I want
1: to let you know that- my goal is to make sure that you feel the highest quality of life. Right. So okay. if a medication, you know, causes side effects, we don't keep you on that. We try something else and then we try something else and we try something else. You see what I'm saying? We mm-hmm. don't keep you on a medicine if you're having a lot of bad side effects. But, you know, of course, it takes the patient to tell me. I don't know what they're, I mean, I can tell them what the possibilities are. Right. They have to tell me what they're actually experiencing, right? Yeah. But-
0: I think part of it is that what you said earlier about people not looking at obesity as a disease. So right. And it was
1: only 2013 when obesity was acknowledged to be a disease by the American Medical Association. And I was the speaker right before they did their pivotal vote to acknowledge it for the disease it is. But that was just 2013. Wow. That was even for the young listeners. That wasn't <laughs> that long ago. Right. Right. But just because we've acknowledged it from the largest medical organization, right? It represents 270,000 physicians from all states and specialties. Just because that happened doesn't mean that it's been ingrained in the culture of medicine or ingrained in the brains of docs who are still not
0: being educated. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I think some of these things are going to take a long time mm-hmm. for change in people's behavior and people, the way people think about things. But hopefully it starts to happen because that's the only way we're going to be able to conquer it.
1: Absolutely. You're you're absolutely right. And I think that's why I, you know, part of why I do the volume of interviews that I do is because I need to do a job of educating you guys. I also do a lot of lectures between 100 and 150 a year to docs and other people that care for patients with obesity because it needs to come from both sides, right? I can talk to you guys you get educated, but if the docs don't understand it, then it doesn't matter. They'd be like, well, I don't know. I don't don't do that. Right. So you want it to come from both directions.
0: Right. Okay. And just to clarify, you Mm -hmm. were saying before, there's like no special diet that we should be on. Just like, you know, you have to listen to your body. So
1: for example, my, I'm going to call out my sister who I adore. My sister is vegan she is very lean. She's always been very lean. She's just as lean now as she was before she became a vegan. First she became vegetarian and then she became vegan. Some people believe, oh, just make everyone become vegan and that will solve obesity. Not not true. You have to listen to what does your body need. You don't need fried chicken. You don't need Cheetos. There are certain things you don't need. (laughs) And so I always tell my patients, the the way to think about your diet is the less processed, the better. So if it doesn't look like its original form, like Cheetos, what does that look like in nature? I don't know. Um, (laughs) Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, It needs to look closest to its original form. So if you do happen to be someone that eats meats, you don't want the processed version of it that doesn't look anything like what it initially looked like. That's then more processed, right? So if you're eating bacon, for example, I'm not saying you can never eat bacon, but, like, where does that come from?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I don't know. I mean, we know it comes from, like, the pig or from the right, turkey. Right. But is there a part of the turkey that's bacon? I don't know. You know right. what I'm saying? Right? <laughs> I mean, I'm just, they're just throwing these things out there. So we want, I'm not saying that you can never have those things. So I want to be, be very clear that I'm not being unrealistic. My goal is just to, to think about the less processed, the better. Right? right? So we want it to look more like what it came from. Whether it's a vegetable or grain or whatever it is, we want it to
0: look more like that. Absolutely. And I think you definitely are right about doing what works for your body, because what works for some just doesn't work for others. Exactly. This is not a cookie cutter.
1: Not at all. And Absolutely. so it's it's important for us to know that. And it's OK. It doesn't mean that, you know, someone's better or worse. It just means we're different and that's OK. That's what makes us human.
0: OK. So do you have any other resources that people could kind of come back to? Absolutely.
1: I mean, I, so I wrote a, a book that came out last year. It's okay. called
0: Facing Overweight
1: and Obesity. Um, it's on Amazon. So you can, if you're a Kindle reader, you can look at it on Kindle. Um, if you're like a, I guess like one of those unlimited Kindle people, it's free. And then there's a paperback. So I think that as the, the primary author on the text, I think that it's a really good resource to look at. To kind of just understand the complexity of overweight and obesity, both in kids and adults. So it's called Facing Overweight and Obesity, a Complete Guide for Children and Adults. I told you I treat both patient populations, so I did not leave out what's going on with kids. I know we didn't talk about that much today, but I think it's, it's a really great resource. And really comprehensive, it even gets into some of the issues like weight bias. So if you feel discriminated against because of your weight and weight status, right, it gets into the influence of media. It gets into a lot of things, not just the science-y part, Mm -hmm. which it does get into, obviously, because it would be (laughs) kind of hard not to talk about it like, you know, I couldn't have done it today. So I like that as a resource. There are several lectures that I've done that are freely available. If you Google you know, Dr. Fatima Cody Stanford in Harvard, for example. You'll see a lot of lectures that if you want to just kind of look at, like me explain it in, in, in full detail, I think that a lot of people find those useful. The one that I think gets, I don't know, gets a lot of a lot of looks is one that I did for Radcliffe Institute here at Harvard. And if you just googled my first name, Fatima or Radcliffe, R A D C L I F F E, and Fatima, you would see that lecture, and I think it's a fine lecture. I think a lot of people have have utilized it to really understand obesity. The title of it is "Obesity: It's More Complex Than You Think." So that's a good one. So those are those are a few resources that I feel like if you if you have time to do all of those things, right? Then great. Right. But the reality is, that there's a lot of information.
0: Okay. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Did you have anything else that you wanted to share with the listeners? I would say just, you know,
1: when we're thinking about overweight and obesity, this is not all your fault. Do you may have, may you have some role to play in some facet of it? Maybe, but I want you to, to remove a lot of the blame from yourself and get the care that you need. Obesity is killing our community in the midst of this pandemic, which is disproportionately affecting us. It appears to be the disease that's most causative of, of death. We don't know when the next pandemic is coming. We don't know when this one is going to be over. So why not optimize our health to the best of our abilities? I think that's important, but stop blaming yourself and get the care you need. We're here to help, and we just need you to recognize that and seek the care, get the care, and insist on high quality care. So that's what I want to leave you with.
0: Thank you so much. That Absolutely. was wonderful. It was so much information there. I think that it was life altering for many. Thanks, Bree.
1: <laughs> cutest. Well, Thank thanks you. so much for having me. You know, I, I know that sometimes some stuff can sound really <laughs> complex and it is. I mean, that's what makes makes my job not one that I can immediately predict the answer to. Mm-hmm. And I always tell my patients that they are the answer sheet. You know, like how you get the, the answer key to the problem. I don't know what the answer is until we try.
0: Right, You know, so there right. is a lot
1: of trial and error. So I would say be patient awesome Okay, yes. Yeah, be patient.
0: All right, so what did you think? So much new information, at least to me. I don't think I realize how much obesity impacts and how widespread it really is. That story of the little girl with the sleep apnea really hit me in the chest. So again, if you'd like to read more, Dr. Stanford does have that book, Facing Overweight and Obesity. I'll put the link to that on Amazon in the show notes, as well as that lecture at Radcliffe Institute at Harvard. Of course, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Yo, this can't be life. Also, please subscribe. We're on all the major platforms, including Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, and more. Please consider leaving a rating or review as this really helps the show. Until next time.